This sermon, a worthy example, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, February 6th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. Would you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, if for some reason you ran out of the house without your Bible or your phone is dead, (laughs) there are Bibles in front of you. You're welcome to use one of those. But this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 6, verses 8 through 14. And if you're visiting with us, we like to stand when we read God's Word just as a way to set this part of our service, our worship apart. So would you please stand with me? Acts 6, verse 8, Luke writes this, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, That this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we have sung your praises. And now as as we look to your word, we ask that you would engage us in a very unique way. Lord, we, we pray that your spirit would be here in power in every mind and heart present. Lord, as we look to your word, we, we do not want to leave this place the same way we came into this place. Lord, our, heart is to, our hearts are to be transformed by your word. That is the work of your spirit alone. And so we appeal that your spirit would be here. I pray that your spirit would fill me freshly for the privilege and the task of preaching this morning, that I might preach with passion and clarity in a manner that is faithful to the text and that is glorifying to the Savior. I pray for those seated 
the listeners, the hearers, those that you have gathered here by your grace today, that, that we would all be exegetical listeners, hearing your word. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Prick our hearts. Cause us to see you, to see our Savior, to see your Spirit in your word. Lord, I pray for those who are here and think they know you, but they don't, that you would save them. Lord, I pray for those who are here and they don't know you and they know it, that you would save them. And for those who are here who know you by your grace, Lord, may today be a day as if for the first time our eyes were open to the beauty and glory of Jesus. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why are we preaching through the book of Acts? Why the book of Acts? Well, the title of our series uh, is helpful. It's, it's the answer to the question. Hopeful. Hopeful. I had Mark Alderton come preach his sermon uh, last Sunday uh, in this series for uh, good reason. And if you were here or if you were looking in uh, via live stream, I I hope that you were blessed. Um, But it was timely in where we are in the book of Acts. As Christians, we have the word of God, don't we? We have the Word of God, and as we heard last week, and we have the Spirit of God. Therefore, we should be hopeful. That is, our hearts should be filled with expectation that God will work in us and through us, not just for our sanctification, but to advance the gospel right here in Tucson, and to build his church by bringing salvation to sinners, people that you know right now that need to be saved by the grace of God. So as we look at Acts, seeing how truth went forth and the power of the Spirit to the church, as we look at Acts, our prayer is that we would become hopeful For it's the same God who worked 2,000 years ago that works today. It's the same gospel mission that these people were set forth that we have the privilege of being a part today. So it's to that end that this morning we are introduced to a man named Stephen. He is the first martyr in the book of Acts, and as we will see in the next couple of weeks, Stephen represents both a definitive theological break from Judaism and a critical transition in the mission to take the gospel, as it says in chapter 1, verse 8, to the ends of the earth. Now, up to this point, one man has really dominated the story of Acts, and that's, that's Peter, right, with his powerful preaching and his bold leadership of the disciples, And of course, in chapter 8, we'll meet a man named Saul, who was listening in on Stephen, and we will learn was watching Stephen 
And this Saul, of course, you know, will become Paul, the church-planting apostle to the Gentiles. But he, beginning in chapter 8, he will dominate the rest of Acts the moment he enters the scene. So in between these two giants, Peter, the apostle Peter, and the apostle Paul, we have, interestingly enough, the deacon, Stephen. We have Stephen. His story is short but powerful. It may be one of the most popular stories, one of the most familiar stories in Acts, but Stephen doesn't get a lot of ink in the book of Acts. And we're going to spend three weeks looking at the story of Stephen. We, we can really parse his story out into three parts. First, his ministry and arrest, Acts 6, 8 through 14. Then his groundbreaking sermon, which will go run from 615 to 753. And then finally, his watershed execution from 754 to chapter 8, verse 1. So three, we're going to spend the next, we're going to spend three sermons in the story of Stephen. This morning, our focus is Stephen's ministry and his arrest. And I singled out this text because if we pay close attention to what Luke wants us to know about Stephen here, we will learn much for our own ministry, both personally and collectively as a church. Now, we don't know much about Stephen, but the one thing that we do know that's clear is that Stephen was a godly man. Previously in verse 5, Luke describes Stephen as full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And that godly description continues in our text today as we encounter a man who is very worthy of our emulation. He is a worthy example for all of us. So we're going to look at three points from the text this morning, and then we'll have some application and we'll finish up there. But the first thing that I want us to see here is that Stephen, and we're going to be looking at Stephen. What you're going to see as we go through this is that Luke spends most of his time pointing out, making statements about Stephen, his character, and his example. And the first thing that he draws to our attention is right there in verse 8, that Stephen was full of grace. Stephen was a man full of grace. Now, the word here is charis. And it, it, Luke uses it not in the sense of saving grace. We know that Luke was saved. But Luke is using this word in a different way, a graciousness. There was a graciousness about Stephen. Luke is saying that, that this was a man who there was a, a genuine sweetness to his disposition. This was a man who, who you were with him and you just walked away. That, that's a gentle spirited man. There, there was a winsomeness. That, that word actually means winsomeness. So there was a, a humility about Stephen. He wasn't just a, a pleasant guy. He just didn't, wasn't a guy who knew how to work the room. He didn't merely have a likable personality. This was a man, Luke says, God's grace 
in him, God's grace toward him flowed out from him. And it affected those around him. You might say there was an authentic Christ-likeness about Stephen. He was full of grace. As we look at Stephen in the synagogue here, he, he wasn't looking for a fight. This is not a man who was argumentative. He wasn't quick-tempered. He, he was filled up with Christ. He was full of grace. And I, I think that's, that's important for us just to pause for a moment because even in the church today and in the day and age of social media where you can just in your pajamas sit in the privacy of your own home and say whatever you want... I think this is often missing amongst believers, that sweetness, that winsomeness, even as we engage with other believers over theology, over the local church. And Luke points out that this was a man who didn't think highly of himself. There was a genuine humility in how he treated others, and how he engaged with others. So the first thing he says, Stephen was full of grace. There was a Christ-likeness about him that you walked away thinking, the Lord is with that guy. He also says, notice, that he was full of power. He was full of grace, verse 8, and power. Now, now Luke in verse 3 and 5, Luke tells us that Stephen was full of the Spirit. As a Christian, Stephen had the Spirit living in him. He was at Pentecost. We know that Stephen was full of the Spirit, but, we, but as we have already seen in places like Acts 4, the early believer had a, had a conviction, their pneumatology, their doctrine of the Holy Spirit included this understanding that, that there was a need for an ongoing filling of the Spirit in that Ephesians 5, 18 way where, where we see be continually filled with the Spirit means an ongoing activity. It's not a one and done thing. Certainly the, the moment you are justified, the moment you believe in the gospel, the Spirit indwells you, sealing your heart for that day that we sang about this morning. But there's this ongoing, this continued filling of the Spirit and as we have already seen, whether it's in Acts 1 and the great promise of verse 8 or it's Acts 4, this, this need for the filling of the Spirit, for the power and the boldness of ministry and in particular for witness, gospel witness. And the result of, of being filled with the Spirit is being full of Power. Now, in this case, that power, you'll notice in, uh, you'll notice in, uh, in verse 8 that that power, Luke draws our attention to the fact that, that Stephen was full of grace and power, and then he says he was doing great wonders. He was doing great signs among the people. And so th that power was revealed in the signs and wonders. Luke doesn't describe them here, but the point is that 
They were signs and wonders. In other words, they weren't of Stephen's own doing. That They weren't the fruit of his intellect. They weren't the fruit of, of his strength. They were the fruit of the power of the Spirit at work through Stephen. And as a side note, interestingly enough, Stephen is not an apostle. He's not an apostle. It's a reminder that, that God did not, nor does he, reserve his spectacular work for a small group of men at some point in redemptive history. We heard last week, well, we don't worship the gifts we don't, we're not about the gifts, we're about the cross, we're about the gospel, but yet scripture is clear that God gives gifts to his church through the spirit, and that giving continues today. You don't need to be up here for God to use, whether that's through a prophetic gift, or that is like Stephen, to just share the gospel with a group of people. It's a reminder for us this morning. And again, before we move on here, it's, it's a reminder of that question that was posed to us last week. Do you expect God to do amazing things as you courageously and graciously in humility and trusting in the Spirit, do you do you expect God to do amazing things as you witness and minister in the power of the Spirit? We should. We should, God, because of the nature and who God is. So Stephen, Stephen, Luke says Stephen is full of power, full of grace, and then he says that he was full of wisdom. Notice verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And then look what he says in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, if you're wondering, the synagogue of the freedmen, what? Never heard that before. Uh, that, that was probably, you know, it, this is debatable. Was this different synagogues? I think this was probably really one synagogue. Uh, but but the, the idea that the, the synagogue of the freedmen was probably a synagogue that was attended by former slaves uh, or descendants of slaves from, you can look up in your history book and check it out, but, but, but when Pompey laid siege to Jerusalem in 63 BC, he carried people off and they were, they were scattered. And so these names here that he mentions, uh, the, the, they represent North Africa and modern day Turkey. And so the, these, are, these are Jews who have been scattered outside of Palestine or are descendants of those who've been scattered outside of Palestine. And so therefore, they are living outside of Palestine. And there are numerous reasons why the synagogue was relevant to the early church, beginning with God's design, right? We, we, we know what the apostle preached, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Well, the Jews hung out at the synagogue, 
When Paul went into a city, he went to the synagogue. He preached Christ to the Jew. And so the synagogue was a natural place for Stephen to be. But it was also a natural place for Stephen to be because these early Christians, they, they were still kind of shaken off their Jewish habits and their, they, were still, they were still a bit Jewish. These early believers were learning how the gospel changes everything they believed and did. We see that so clearly in the, in the Council of Jerusalem, right? When the Gentiles are beginning to get saved, and it's clear that the Jewish Christians are, are still trying to put some of their Jewish convictions on these people. And so the synagogue was a natural place. It was a natural place to discuss a lot of religious discussion happened at the synagogue. It was a natural place for the exchange of theological ideas. It was a natural place for a man like Stephen to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, next week in, in, in Stephen's sermon, uh, the text we'll look at next week, his sermon was a watershed moment because what we will see is he is about to make a clear distinction between Judaism and Christianity. We'll save that for next week. What I want us to see right now in all this synagogue talk, what I want us to see is that the men that Stephen is engaged with here, they were really smart Men. They were used to sitting around talking theological shop. These people were in the synagogue to learn and to teach. These were smart men. And Luke says in verse 10 they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. Now, I take wisdom to mean both the word of God, God and the gospel, but also the way in which Stephen preached, the way in which he engaged. There was an understanding that he had of the profound and paradigm-shattering sh uh, truths of the gospel that, that he was bringing. Stephen, the idea here is that Stephen is being carried along in the spirit. He was full of grace. He was full of power. The wisdom was off the charts, and it was clear that the spirit was at work in and through Stephen. His preaching Christ, he did it effectively and he did it powerfully. And Luke says these men could not withstand it. In other words, these learned men, they were at a loss. They couldn't withstand. You might interpret that that they couldn't grasp or they couldn't cope. What Stephen was saying, they didn't know what to say. They had no answers. They don't know how to respond. It's a little bit like we see with Jesus often in his ministry. He would speak and mouths were shut. That, that's the scene here. 
these learned men. Here is Stephen. The best that we can say about him is he, he, was, he, he was a man convinced of his faith, the gospel. He was full of the spirit. He was gracious. And he understood the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love this picture. These guys, all their knowledge, all their education, all their human intellect, all their reasoning, all their human reasoning was no match for Stephen as he passionately and courageously engaged them with the wisdom of the word and in the power of the spirit. I know you've experienced this. I've heard stories from, from many of you. Yeah, I was talking to this person at you know, the coffee shop or in my neighbor or whatever, and we were engaged, and I, we, before I knew it, we were 15 minutes in, and I, the Lord must have given me those words. I, I think that Stephen was just being carried along by the Spirit, and these men had no match for that. Here's the point of these verses, and the point that I think we easily lose sight of. We believe it, we profess it, but functionally, (laughs) we lose sight of it. And it's this. Stephen's powerful ministry was fruit of the grace and power of the Spirit at work through him. Not of his education. Not of his personality that may have been courageous. Peter was bold, (laughs) naturally. It, It was the grace and power of the Spirit through him. Luke hammers that home. He hammers that home. There's a cadence for Luke when it comes to Stephen. Verse 3 and 5, Stephen was a man full of the Spirit, a man of faith. Verse 8, Stephen was full of grace. He was full of power. Verse 10, his wisdom in the Word and the power of the Spirit, it was unmatchable. That's what Luke works hard. He just could have said, you know, Stephen was an effective evangelist and he got in trouble for it. Notice all the attention is off of Stephen. It's on the grace and the power and the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And those separated by millennia and cultures It's the same for us today, isn't it? We heard it last week. Effective ministry, both personally and collectively, is based on grace and power and wisdom from above. I love what Eckhart Schnabel says. He says, 
Christians living in the West are in danger of being too thoroughly influenced by a culture that values technical skills, management strategies, and and methodical planning. While expertise in these areas are not, not unimportant, it can easily, let's pay attention to this, it can easily obscure the fact that ministries, particularly mission and evangelism, are not rendered effective by techniques, but by the power of God who empowers his witness through his spirit. I've had people say to me in the past, I don't know how to share the gospel. And I get that question. I understand what they're saying. But there's a part of me that says, it's okay. You know the gospel. (laughs) Give it to them. Now, now, yes, we, we, want, we want to be discerning. We want to be, at times, surgeon-like. We want to understand where they're coming. We want to know how to connect the gospel to where they're at. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the power is not in my delivery. If there is any fruit that is born from this sermon today, it's not because of my delivery. It's not because of my study this week. It's not because of my understanding of Acts or this text It is purely because the Spirit of God is at work through his word. Full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom. All supernatural works of the Spirit in us for the purpose of proclaiming the name of Jesus. Now listen, listen. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that I sit on the couch waiting for opportunity and trusting the Lord will miraculously just put theological thoughts into my head that I've never even heard of before when opportunity comes. We have to be careful there. We are fully reliant on the Spirit. And yet 1 Peter 3.15 exhorts us to always be ready to give a reason for our hope, to give a rationale for our faith. Be ready. Be ready, Derek. Scripture says, speaking particularly to pastors, but but it's appropriate for every believer to show ourselves as, as studiers, of God's word. And so, while we completely rely on the spirit, God designs it. He uses us. He works through means. And so, what I want to do here is I want to use the rest of our time to just point out four things. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure you can think of some more. Four, Four things that we can do to prepare and position ourselves for the Holy Spirit-empowered ministry and witness. Fully anchored in the reality that only God can bear fruit. First, be a student of the word. Be a student 
of the word. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. We're going to find out next week, Stephen knew the Old Testament scriptures. The Spirit filled his message with power. But it was clear that Stephen knew the Old Testament scriptures. It's clear that Stephen was a student of the scriptures. And so we should be. And, and here's why. If the word is in my heart, then the word will be at the heart of my words. You get that? If the word is in here, the word will come out as I talk. I love that, that Gatorade commercial. You ever seen it? It's, it's, it's probably a decade old now, but, but it's the athlete. And they got like, you know, they're sweating, but, but the beads of sweat on their skin is colored. It's a Gatorade commercial. And the tagline is, is it in you? And the imagery is, if it's in you, it's coming out. They, it's that idea. Charles Spurgeon referred to it as being blind, as he described Bunyan. He said he was blind. He, he constantly bringing the word in, and every time he spoke, the word was coming out. Be a student of the word. I think Jesus alluded to this in the Gospel of John in chapter 14 when he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am, while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see what Jesus is saying? This deposit of truth that I've given to you, my word, my teaching, that which you already have, that which you've already heard, that which you know, the Spirit will bring it to mind. Earlier in John, Jesus says, I will give you the words to speak. I will give you the wisdom. But there's a connection here. He's not giving us new revelation. <laughs> it's not like, you know, Tim walks up and goes, wow, that, that, you realize that what you just talked about up there, that was the doctrine of justification. Well, I've never heard of the doctrine of justification, but apparently I nailed it. <laughs> no. We, we, we need to be students of the word. It's that truth deposited in us that the spirit brings to remembrance in the moment. An example of this, when Mark last week was sharing about when he was asked to preach, and it was like, okay, dude, you got an hour, right? And he freaked out a little. I leaned over Donna and says, uh, that happened to me in Bolivia. <laughs> we are with a group of pastors, and we were sitting in on their meeting, and, and Krista Loglis, the pastor in our, in our, one of our Virginia churches, and I was down there with him. He said, now, Derek, you need to be ready because they'll just call on you down there. <laughs> They're very much spirit people. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Not, well, I'm sitting in this meeting, and a guy walks over to Chris, says something in Spanish, which I'm oblivious, and he says, hey, Derek, 
they want you to preach. Oh, okay. Five minutes. Oh, and I was like Mark. Outside, I was like, sure. Inside, I was like, what? I did. I did 20 minutes on Psalm 46. Something that was in my heart. I had a translator, which I wasn't used to. I didn't know these men. I had three minutes to prepare. I had no notes. But Psalm 46 was in my heart, and in that moment when God wanted the men to hear that, the Spirit of God brought to remembrance, and I preached, and apparently it was effective, and it was fruitful based on the men who came up to me afterwards. It was already there, and the Spirit of God brought it to remembrance. Be a student of the Word. Be ready to give a reason for your faith. Second, embrace your dependence on the Spirit. We, we heard this last week, but you know, I just remind us, we, we hate that. That's a 10-letter word. <laughs> we hate that 10-letter word, dependence. It strikes at our pride like nothing else, doesn't it? I mean, tell a guy you, you can't do something. That's every, that's every athlete's testimony. My high school coach or my father, or somebody told me I couldn't do it. And I said, you watch, right? Nothing strikes our pride like the reality of dependence. And yet, that's exactly what we see in Scripture. That's what we see with Stephen. He was dependent on the Spirit of God in and of ourselves. We have no power to accomplish anything spiritual. Nothing. It's the Spirit of God that makes truth alive in our minds and in our hearts, and it's the Spirit of God that makes our ministry efforts fruitful. So don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Instead, we, we must embrace our dependence on the Spirit. And how do we do that? Prayer. Lord, fill me up freshly with your with your spirit for the strength and power to be humble as I share with my neighbor, to speak with clarity as I share Christ, to be bold with that person at work who I know is an atheist and hates Christians. Pray for the fresh filling of the spirit to give you discernment and wisdom in the moment so that you know what to say and how to say it. Pray for the power of the Spirit to, to have the right words at the right time. Pray for fruit. I always forget that part. Pray. This is not about me and what I'm doing. I pray that if you don't know Jesus today, that you will know him before you leave here. Amen. I pray that, that if you're struggling this morning 
and recognizing how the Spirit is at work, that you leave here with a better understanding, maybe not a full understanding, but that there will be fruit as God's Word goes forth. Pray. We, we, we express our dependence on the Spirit first and foremost through prayer. Paul prayed, or he asked the Thessalonians, didn't he? Pray that I might know what to say when I go out there. Paul understood his dependence. So be a student of the word. Embrace your dependence on the spirit and keep the main thing, the main thing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Luke doesn't exactly, doesn't tell us exactly what Stephen was discussing in these verses. But based on verses 13 and 14, it must have been, it must have been focused on the supremacy of Jesus in the plan of God. In verses 13 and 14, they they talk about Moses. He's he's, he's down talking Moses. He's he's down talking the law. He's down talking the temple. I I think Stephen was just doing a Hebrews thing (laughs) and just talking to them about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that that changes everything that we've been doing here at the synagogue, guys. He gave them, no doubt, he said, guys, Our hope, it's not in a sacrificial system. It's in a single sacrifice. Our hope is no longer in Moses and the law. It's in a crucified and risen and ascended Jesus. I think he was just preaching the gospel and connecting it to what they were putting, setting their hopes in. To help them see, no, it's this. That's our mission, isn't it? Our mission, listen, when we share Christ, we are not trying to win someone to a pro-life position or a particular political affiliation. That's not what we're trying to do. Our mission is not to convince others of the doctrine of election and every aspect of Calvinism. We, we, our goal is not to, to win people over to a particular moral standard or a certain parenting method. Salvation in Jesus is the goal, and the gospel is the only way. So, you check my logic here, give them Jesus. <laughs> Give them Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What do they believe about Jesus? Help them see why Jesus is relevant. Connect their lives and their worldviews and their fears and their doubts and their failures and their solutions to the person and the work 
of Jesus. Listen, if you are here right now and you don't know Jesus, can I remind you what we sang this morning? First of all, you are a sinner just like the rest of us. That's what scripture is very clear about. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy, infinite holy, he cannot overlook sin. Every sinner will pay for their sin with eternity. And no sinner on their own can absolve themselves of their sin. So if you're here, if you're here, there is a way. It's Jesus who lived the perfect life for your righteousness that fully satisfies the glory of God. Oh, what wisdom. The divine such a plan that God himself would take on human flesh and give himself as a single sacrifice and that every sinner who believed in his name would realize my sin is now forgiven. Somebody took it for me. It's been paid for in full. All of it. My sins, oh, they are many. But God's mercy, it is infinitely more. And you don't have to conjure up wisdom. You don't have to come to the table looking like someone or talking like someone. You cry out to the Spirit of God to fill your heart with the glory of Christ. How do we prepare and position ourselves to be used by the Spirit of God? Be a student of the Word. Embrace your dependence on the Spirit. Keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The spirit will make that effectual in the heart, but that's what we have to give. It's why you're here. It's the only reason why you're here. It's the only reason why I'm here. My hell-bound race was taking me nowhere. Drugs and alcohol and running from the law. What am I doing here? At some point, somebody faithfully preached the gospel. They didn't tell me how to clean my act up. They told me about a man named Jesus. And the Spirit of God took care of the rest. Keep the main thing the main thing. Finally, as we close, don't be surprised by opposition. Listen, we will talk more about this in the third section of Stephen's story, but briefly, because it's here in the text. Verses 10 through 14, Luke makes it clear, Luke, 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 Luke makes it clear that Stephen's message did not comport with their, uh, it didn't jive with their world view. They were hearing, they were hearing about the supremacy of Jesus. They didn't like it. And no doubt they realized we are no match 
for what this guy is bringing. So I'm sure they felt defeated. So notice in verse 11, what did they do? And really, I was reading John Stott, and he said, it's natural when our argument fails that mud, throwing, slinging mud becomes the next solution. And boy, do we see that today. Don't we see that in our politics? Don't we see that in our world? Don't we see that in our own lives too often? And that's what happens here. These men, notice verse 11, they are angry. They realize we cannot cope with this guy. I don't know what's going on, but, but our own rationale. So verse 11, they secretly instigated men against Stephen. Verse 12, they stirred up people. And then verse 13, they set up false witnesses against Stephen. Luke piles these phrases up secretly instigated men, stirred up, set up fault. He piles these up to paint a picture of a ruthless whisper campaign, if you will, meant to oppose, meant, meant, meant to smear, and even eliminate Stephen because they couldn't match the power of the Spirit at work in this man. So he, we're, we're going to talk more about this the final sermon of, the, uh, of Stephen's story. But here's what I want to hear. Don't be surprised by opposition. Jesus promised it. Jesus experienced it himself. And history has proven it. Don't be surprised by opposition as you boldly speak out in the spirit. If you are, you will probably be silenced by you will probably be silenced by that opposition. If I can have the worship team come up. In closing, listen. Um, this story with Stephen's gonna get really crazy. Here's what I want us to understand this morning. God is still advancing his church. The gospel is still going Forth. Sinners are still being saved, and the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use us in his great plan of salvation. He wants to use you in your neighborhoods. He wants to use you in your school. He wants to use you in your workplace. He wants to use you on your kids' sports fields. He wants to use you in your local coffee shop. He wants to use you in your families. But it's not up to you, ultimately. Oh, get the word in you. Embrace your need for the Spirit. Focus on giving people Jesus. And trust the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. Or as the psalmist in Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I'm God. That doesn't mean be silent. That means trust that I will do only what I can do. Listen, no one here is a Stephen. At the same time, we're all Stephens, aren't we? Saved by the grace, saved by the same God, empowered by the same Spirit, part of the same church and proclaiming the same Jesus.